Part two, chapter one of the Valley of Fear by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part two, the Scourers, chapter one, the Man. It was the fourth of February in the year eighteen seventy-five. It had been a severe winter, and the snow lay deep in the gorges of the Gilmerton Mountains. The steam ploughs had, however, kept the railroad open, and the evening train which connects the long line of coal-mining and iron-working settlements was slowly groaning its way up the steep gradients which led from Stagville on the plain to Vermissa, the central township which lies at the head of Vermissa Valley. From this point the track sweeps downward to Barton's Crossing, Helmdale, and the purely agricultural county of Merton. It was a single-track railroad, but at every siding, and they were numerous, long lines of trucks piled with coal and iron ore told of the hidden wealth which had brought a rude population and a bustling life to this most desolate corner of the United States of America. For desolate it was. Little could the first pioneer who had traversed it have ever imagined that the fairest prairies and the most lush water pastures were valueless compared to this gloomy land of black crag and tangled forest. Above the dark and often scarcely penetrable woods upon their flanks, the high, bare crowns of the mountains, white snow and jagged rock, towered upon each flank, leaving a long, winding, tortuous valley in the centre. Up this the little train was slowly crawling. The oil lamps had just been lit in the leading passenger car, a long, bare carriage, in which some twenty or thirty people were seated. The greater number of these were workmen, returning from their day's toil in the lower part of the valley. At least a dozen, by their grimed faces and the safety lanterns which they carried, proclaimed themselves miners. These sat smoking in a group and conversed in low voices, glancing occasionally at two men on the opposite side of the car, whose uniforms and badges showed them to be policemen. Several women of the labouring class and one or two travellers who might have been small local storekeepers made up the rest of the company, with the exception of one young man in a corner by himself. It is with this man that we are concerned. Take a good look at him, for he is worth it. He's a fresh-complexioned, middle-sized young man, not far, one would guess, from his thirtieth year. He has large, shrewd, humorous grey eyes, which twinkle inquiringly from time to time as he looks round through his spectacles at the people about him. It is easy to see that he is of a sociable and possibly simple disposition, anxious to be friendly to all men. Anyone could pick him at once as gregarious in his habits and communicative in his nature, with a quick wit and a ready smile. And yet, the man who studied him more closely might discern a certain firmness of jaw and grim tightness about the lips which would warn him that there were depths beyond and that this pleasant brown-haired young irishman might conceivably leave his mark for good or evil upon any society to which he was introduced having made one or two tentative remarks to the nearest miner and receiving only short gruff replies the traveller resigned himself to uncongenial silence, staring moodily out of the window at the fading landscape. It was not a cheering prospect. 
Through the growing gloom there pulsed the red glow of the furnaces on the sides of the hills. Great heaps of slag and dumps of cinders loomed up on each side, with the high shafts of the collieries towering above them. Huddled groups of mean, wooden houses, the windows of which were beginning to outline themselves in light, were scattered here and there along the line, and the frequent halting-places were crowded with their swarthy inhabitants. The iron and coal valleys of the Vermissa district were no resorts for the leisured or the cultured. Everywhere there were stern signs of the crudest battle of life, the rude work to be done, and the rude, strong workers who did it. The young traveller gazed out into this dismal country, with a face of mingled repulsion and interest, which showed that the scene was new to him. At intervals he drew from his pocket a bulky letter to which he referred, and on the margins of which he scribbled some notes. Once from the back of his waist he produced something which one would hardly have expected to find in the possession of so mild-mannered a man. It was a navy revolver of the largest size. As he turned it slantwise to the light, the glint upon the rims of the copper shells within the drum showed that it was fully loaded. He quickly restored it to his secret pocket, but not before it had been observed by a working man who had seated himself upon the adjoining bench. "'Hello, mate,' said he. "'You seem healed and ready.' The young man smiled with an air of embarrassment. "'Yes,' said he. "'We need them sometimes in the place I come from.' "'And where may that be?' "'I'm last from Chicago.' "'A stranger in these parts?' "'Yes.' "'You may find you need it here,' said the workman. "'Ah, is that so?' The young man seemed interested. "'Have you heard nothing of doings hereabouts?' "'Nothing out of the way.' "'Why, I thought the country was full of it. You'll hear quick enough. What made you come here?' "'I heard there was always work for a willing man.' "'Are you a member of the Union?' "'Sure. Then you'll get your job, I guess. Have you any friends?' "'Not yet. But I have the means of making them.' "'How's that, then?' "'I am one of the eminent order of freemen. There's no town without a lodge, and where there's a lodge I'll find my friends.' The remark had a singular effect upon his companion. He glanced around suspiciously at the others in the car. The miners were still whispering among themselves. The two police officers were dozing. He came across, seated himself close to the young traveller, and held out his hand. "'Put it there,' he said. A hand-grip passed between the two. "'I see you speak the truth,' said the workman. "'But it's well to make certain.' He raised his right hand to his right eyebrow. The traveller at once raised his left hand to his left eyebrow. "'Dark nights are unpleasant,' said the workman. "'Yes, for strangers to travel,' the other answered. "'That's good enough. I am Brother Scanlon, Lodge 341, Vermissa Valley. Glad to see you in these parts.' "'Thank you. I'm Brother John McMurdo, Lodge 29, Chicago. Bodymaster J. H. Scott.' but I'm in luck to meet a brother so early. Well, there are plenty of us about. You won't find the order more flourishing anywhere in the States than right here in Vermissa Valley. But we could do with some lads like you. 
I can't understand a spry man of the Union finding no work to do in Chicago. I found plenty of work to do, said McMurdo. Then why did you leave? McMurdo nodded toward the policeman and smiled. I guess those chaps will be glad to know, he said. Scanlon groaned sympathetically. In trouble? he asked in a whisper. Deep? A penitentiary job? And the rest? Not a killing? It's early days to talk of such things, said McMurdo with the air of a man who had been surprised into saying more than he intended. I've my own good reasons for leaving Chicago, and let that be enough for you. Who are you that you should take it on yourself to ask such things? His grey eyes gleamed with sudden and dangerous anger from behind his glasses. All right, mate, no offence meant. The boys will think none the worse of you, whatever you may have done. Where are you bound for now? For Missa. That's the third halt down the line. Where are you staying? McMurdo took out an envelope and held it close to the murky oil lamp. Here is the address. Jacob Shafter, Sheridan Street. It's a boarding-house that was recommended by a man I know in Chicago. Well, I don't know it, but Vermissa is out of my beat. I live at Hobson's Patch, and that's here where we're drawing up to now. But say, there's one bit of advice I'll give you before we part. If you're in trouble in Vermissa, go straight to the Union House and see Boss McGinty. He's the bodymaster of Vermissa Lodge, and nothing can happen in these parts unless Black Jack McGinty wants it. So long, mate. Maybe we'll meet in Lodge one of these evenings. But mind my words, if you're in trouble, go to Boss McGinty. Scanlan descended, and McMurdo was left once again to his thoughts. Night had now fallen, and the flames of the frequent furnaces were roaring and leaping in the darkness. Against their lurid background, Dark figures were bending and straining, twisting and turning with the motion of winch or of windlass to the rhythm of an eternal clank and roar. "'I guess hell must look something like that,' said a voice. McMurdo turned and saw that one of the policemen had shifted in his seat and was staring out into the fiery waste. "'For that matter,' said the other policeman, "'I allow that hell must be something like that.' If there are worse devils down yonder than some we could name, it's more than I'd expect. I guess you're new to this part, young man. Well, what if I am? McMurdo answered in a surly voice. Just this, mister, that I should advise you to be careful in choosing your friends. I don't think I'd begin with Mike Scanlan or his gang if I were you. What the hell is it to you? Who are my friends? roared McMurdo in a voice which brought every head in the carriage round to witness the altercation. "'Did I ask you for your advice? Or did you think me such a sucker that I couldn't move without it? You speak when you're spoken to, and by the Lord you'd have to wait a long time if it was me.' He thrust out his face and grinned at the patrolman like a snarling dog. The two policemen, heavy, good-natured men were taken aback by the extraordinary vehemence with which their friendly advances had been rejected. "'No offence, stranger,' said one. "'It was a warning for your own good, seeing that you are, by your own showing, new to the place.' "'I'm new to the place, but I'm not new to you and your kind,' cried McMurdo in cold fury. 
I guess you're the same in all places, shoving your advice in when nobody asks for it. Maybe we'll see more of you before long, said one of the patrolmen with a grin. You're a real hand-picked one, if I'm a judge. I was thinking the same, remarked the other. I guess we may meet again. I'm not afraid of you, and don't you think it, cried McMurdo. My name's Jack McMurdo, see? If you want me, you'll find me at Jacob Shafter's on Sheridan Street, for Missa. So I'm not hiding from you, am I? Day or night, I dare to look the like of you in the face. Don't make any mistake about that. There was a murmur of sympathy and admiration from the miners at the dauntless demeanour of the newcomer, while the two policemen shrugged their shoulders and renewed a conversation between themselves. A few minutes later, the train ran into the ill-lit station, and there was a general clearing, for Vermissa was by far the largest town on the line. McMurdo picked up his leather gripsack and was about to start off into the darkness when one of the miners accosted him. "'By gar, mate, you know how to speak to the cops,' he said in a voice of awe. "'It was grand to hear you. Let me carry your grip and show you the road. I'm passing shafters on the way to my own shack.' There was a chorus of friendly good-nights from the other miners as they passed from the platform. Before ever he had set foot on it, McMurdo the Turbulent had become a character in Vermissa. The country had been a place of terror, but the town was in its way even more depressing. Down that long valley there was at least a certain gloomy grandeur in the huge fires and the clouds of drifting smoke, while the strength and industry of man found fitting monuments in the hills which he had spilled by the side of his monstrous excavations. But the town showed a dead level of mean ugliness and squalor. The broad street was churned up by the traffic into a horrible rutted paste of muddy snow. The sidewalks were narrow and uneven. The numerous gas-lamps served only to show more clearly a long line of wooden houses, each with its veranda facing the street, unkempt and dirty. As they approached the centre of the town, the scene was brightened by a row of well-lit stores, and even more by a cluster of saloons and gaming-houses, in which the miners spent their hard-earned but generous wages. "'That's the Union House,' said the guide, pointing to one saloon which rose almost to the dignity of being a hotel. "'Jack McGinty is the boss there.' "'What sort of man is he?' McMurdo asked. "'What? Have you never heard of the boss?' "'How could I have heard of him?' when you know that I'm a stranger in these parts. Well, I thought his name was known clear across the country. It's been in the papers often enough. What for? Well, the miner lowered his voice, over the affairs. What affairs? Good Lord, mister, you are queer. If I must say it without offence, there's only one set of affairs that you'll hear of in these parts, and that's the affairs of the scourers. Why, I seem to have read of the scourers in Chicago. A gang of murderers, are they not? Hush! On your life! cried the miner, standing still in alarm, and gazing in amazement at his companion. Man, you won't live long in these parts if you speak in the open street like that. Many a man has had the life beaten out of him for less. Well, I know nothing about them. It's only what I've read. And I'm not saying that you've not read the truth. 
The man looked nervously round him as he spoke, peering into the shadows as if he feared to see some lurking danger. "'If killing is murder, then God knows there's a murder and to spare. But don't you dare to breathe the name of Jack McGinty in connection with it, stranger, for every whisper goes back to him, and he's not one that is likely to let it pass. Now, that's the house you're after, that one, standing back from the street. You'll find old Jacob Shafter that runs it as honest a man as lives in this township. I thank you, said McMurdo, and shaking hands with his new acquaintance, he plodded, gripsack in hand, up the path which led to the dwelling-house, at the door of which he gave a resounding knock. It was opened at once by someone very different from what he had expected. It was a woman, young and singularly beautiful. She was of the German type, blonde and fair-haired, with the piquant contrast of a pair of beautiful dark eyes, with which she surveyed the stranger with surprise, and a pleasing embarrassment which brought a wave of colour over her pale face. Framed in the bright light of the open doorway, it seemed to McMurdo that he had never seen a more beautiful picture, the more attractive for its contrast with the sordid and gloomy surroundings a lovely violet growing upon one of those black slag-heaps of the mines, would not have seemed more surprising. So entranced was he, that he stood staring without a word, and it was she who broke the silence. "'I thought it was father,' said she, with a pleasing little touch of a German accent. "'Did you come to see him? He's downtown. I expect him back every minute.' McMurdo continued to gaze at her in open admiration until her eyes dropped in confusion before this masterful visitor. "'No, miss,' he said at last, "'I'm in no hurry to see him. But your house was recommended to me for board. I thought it might suit me, and now I know it will.' "'You are quick to make up your mind,' said she with a smile. "'Any one but a blind man could do as much,' the other answered. She laughed at the compliment. "'Come right in, sir.' she said. I'm Miss Ethel Shafter, Mr. Shafter's daughter. My mother's dead, and I run the house. You can sit down by the stove in the front room until father comes along. Ah, here he is, so you can fix things with him right away. A heavy, elderly man came plodding up the path. In a few words, McMurdo explained his business. A man of the name of Murphy had given him the address in Chicago. He, in turn, had had it from someone else. Old Shafter was quite ready. The stranger made no bones about terms, agreed at once to every condition, and was apparently fairly flush of money. For seven dollars a week paid in advance, he was to have board and lodging. So it was that McMurdo, the self-confessed fugitive from justice, took up his abode under the roof of the Shafters. The first step which was to lead to so long and dark a train of events, ending in a far distant land. End of Part 2, Chapter 1the Bodymaster. McMurdo was a man who made his mark quickly. 
Wherever he was, the folk around soon knew it. Within a week he had become infinitely the most important person at Shafter's. There were ten or a dozen boarders there, but they were honest foremen or commonplace clerks from the stores, of a very different calibre from the young Irishman. Of an evening when they gathered together, his joke was always the readiest, his conversation the brightest, and his song the best. He was a born boon companion, with a magnetism which drew good humour from all around him. And yet he showed again and again, as he had shown in the railway carriage, a capacity for sudden, fierce anger, which compelled the respect and even the fear of those who met him. For the law, too, and all who were connected with it, he exhibited a bitter contempt which delighted some and alarmed others of his fellow boarders. From the first he made it evident, by his open admiration, that the daughter of the house had won his heart from the instant that he had set eyes upon her beauty and her grace. He was no backward suitor. On the second day he told her that he loved her, and from then onward he repeated the same story, with an absolute disregard of what she might say to discourage him. "'Someone else!' he would cry. "'Well, the worse luck for someone else. Let him look out for himself. Am I to lose my life's chance and all my heart's desire for someone else?' You can keep on saying no, Etty. The day will come when you'll say yes, and I'm young enough to wait." He was a dangerous suitor, with his glib Irish tongue and his pretty coaxing ways. There was about him also that glamour of experience and of mystery which attracts a woman's interest, and finally her love. He could talk of the sweet valleys of County Monaghan, from which he came, of the lovely distant island the low hills and green meadows of which seemed the more beautiful when imagination viewed them from this place of grime and snow. Then he was versed in the life of the cities of the north of Detroit and of the lumber camps of Michigan, and finally of Chicago, where he had worked in a planing mill. And afterwards came the hint of romance, the feeling that strange things had happened to him in that great city, so strange and so intimate that they might not be spoken of. He spoke wistfully of a sudden leaving, a breaking of old ties, a flight into a strange world, ending in this dreary valley, and Etty listened, her dark eyes gleaming with pity and with sympathy, those two qualities which may turn so rapidly and so naturally to love. McMurdo had obtained a temporary job as bookkeeper, for he was a well-educated man. This kept him out most of the day, and he had not found occasion yet to report himself to the head of the lodge of the eminent order of freemen. He was reminded of his omission, however, by a visit one evening from Mike Scanlon, the fellow member whom he had met in the train. Scanlon, the small, sharp-faced, nervous, black-eyed man, seemed glad to see him once more. After a glass or two of whisky, he broached the subject of his visit. "'Say, McMurdo,' said he, "'I remembered your address, so I made bold to call. I'm surprised that you've not reported to the body-master. Why haven't you seen Boss McGinty yet?' "'Well, I had to find a job. I've been busy.' "'You must find time for him, if you've none for anything else.' "'Good Lord, man! You're a fool not to have been down to the Union House and registered your name the first morning after you came here.' If you run against him, well, you mustn't, that's all. 
McMurdo showed mild surprise. "'I've been a member of the Lodge for over two years, Scanlan, but I've never heard that duties were so pressing as all that.' "'Maybe not in Chicago.' "'Well, it's the same society here.' "'Is it?' Scanlan looked at him long and fixedly. There was something sinister in his eyes. "'Isn't it?' "'You'll tell me that in a month's time.' I hear you had a talk with the patrolman after I left the train. How did you know that? Oh, it got about. Things do get about for good and for bad in this district. Well, yes, I told the hounds what I thought of them. By the Lord, you'll be a man after McGinty's heart. What? Does he hate the police too? Scanlan burst out laughing. You go and see him, my lad, said he as he took his leave. It's not the police, but you that he'll hate if you don't. Now, take a friend's advice, and go at once. It chanced that on the same evening, McMurdo had another more pressing interview which urged him in the same direction. It may have been that his attentions to Etty had been more evident than before, or that they had gradually obtruded themselves into the slow mind of his good German host. But, whatever the cause, the boarding-house keeper beckoned the young man into his private room and started on the subject without any circumlocution. "'It seems to me, mister,' said he, "'that you are getting set on my Etty. Ain't that so, or am I wrong?' "'Yes, that is so,' the young man answered. "'Well, I want to tell you right now that it ain't no manner of use. There's someone slipped in afore you.' She told me so. Well, you can lay that she told you truth. But did she tell you who it was? No, I asked her, but she wouldn't tell. I dare say not. The little baggage. Perhaps she did not wish to frighten you away. Frighten? McMurdo was on fire in a moment. Ah, yes, my friend. You need not be ashamed to be frightened of him. It is Teddy Baldwin. "'And who the devil is he?' "'He is the boss of Scourers.' "'Scourers? I've heard of them before. "'It's Scourers here and Scourers there, and always in a whisper. "'What are you all afraid of? Who are the Scourers?' "'The boarding-house keeper instinctively sank his voice, "'as everyone did who talked about that terrible society. "'The Scourers,' said he, as the eminent order of freemen. The young man stared. Why, I'm a member of that order myself. You? I would never have had you in my house if I'd known it. Not if you were to pay me a hundred dollars a week. What's wrong with the order? It's for charity and good fellowship. The rules say so. Maybe in some places. Not here. What is it here? It's a murder society. That's what it is. McMurdo laughed incredulously. How can you prove that? he asked. Prove it? Are there not fifty murders to prove it? What about Milman and von Schorst and the Nicholson family and old Mr. Hyam and little Billy James and the others? Prove it? Is there a man or a woman in this valley that does not know it? See here, said McMurdo earnestly. I want you to take back what you said, or else make it good. One or the other you must do before I quit this room. 
Put yourself in my place. Here I am, a stranger in the town. I belong to a society that I know only as an innocent one. You'll find it through the length and breadth of the States, but always as an innocent one. Now, when I'm counting upon joining it here, you tell me that it's the same as a murder society called the Scourers. I guess you owe me either an apology or else an explanation, Mr. Shafter. I can but tell you what the whole world knows, mister. The bosses of the one are the bosses of the other. If you offend the one, it is the other that will strike you. We have proved it too often. That's just gossip. I want proof, said McMurdo. If you live here long, you will get your proof. But I forget that you are yourself one of them. You will soon be as bad as the rest. But you will find other lodgings, mister. I cannot have you here. Is it not bad enough that one of these people come courting my Etty, and that I dare not turn him down, and that I should have another for my boarder? Yes, indeed, you shall not sleep here after to-night. McMurdo found himself under sentence of banishment, both from his comfortable quarters and from the girl whom he loved. He found her alone in the sitting-room that same evening, and he poured his troubles into her ear. "'Sure your father is after giving me notice,' he said. "'It's little I would care if it was just my room. But indeed, Etty, though it's only a week that I've known you, you're the very breath of life to me, and I can't live without you.' "'Oh, hush, Mr. McMurdo, don't speak so,' said the girl. "'I've told you, have I not, that you're too late. There's another, and if I have not promised to marry him at once, at least I can promise no one else.' "'Suppose I had been first, Etty?' would have had a chance. The girl sank her face into her hands. I wish to heaven that you had been first, she sobbed. McMurdo was down on his knees before her in an instant. For God's sake, Etty, let it stand at that, he cried. Will you ruin your life and my own for the sake of this promise? Follow your heart, Akushla. Tis a safer guide than any promise before you knew what it was that you were saying. He had seized Etty's white hand between his own strong brown ones. "'Say that you'll be mine, and we'll face it out together.' "'Not here.' "'Yes, here.' "'No, no, Jack.' His arms were round her now. "'It could not be here. Could you take me away?' A struggle passed for a moment over McMurdo's face, but it ended by setting like granite. "'No, here,' he said. I'll hold you against the world, Etty, right here where we are. Why should we not leave together? No, Etty, I can't leave here. But why? I'd never hold my head up again if I felt that I'd been driven out. Besides, what is there to be afraid of? Are we not free folks in a free country? If you love me and I you, who would dare to come between us? You don't know, Jack. You've been here too short a time. You don't know this Baldwin. You don't know how McGinty and his cowers. No, I don't know them, and I don't fear them, and I don't believe in them, said McMurdo. I've lived among rough men, my darling, and instead of fearing them, it has always ended that they feared me. Always, Etty. It's mad on the face of it. If these men, as your father says, have done crime after crime in the valley, and if everyone knows them by name, how come is that none hath brought to justice? You answer me that, Etty. 
because no witness dares to appear against them. He would not live a month if he did, also because they have always their own men to swear that the accused one was far from the scene of the crime. But surely, Jack, you must have read all this. I had understood that every paper in the United States was writing about it. Well, I've read something, it is true, but I thought it was a story. Maybe these men have some reason in what they do. Maybe they're wronged and have no other way to help themselves. Oh, Jack, don't let me hear you speak or so. That is how he speaks, the other one. Baldwin, he speaks like that, does he? And that is why I loathe him so. Oh, Jack, how can I tell you the truth? I loathe him with all my heart, but I fear him also. I fear him for myself, but above all I fear him for my father. I know that some great sorrow would come upon us if I dared to say what I really felt. That is why I have put him off with half-promises. It was in real truth our only hope. But if you would fly with me, Jack, we could take father with us and live forever far from the power of these wicked men." Again there was the struggle upon McMurdo's face, and again it set like granite. No harm shall come to you, Etty, nor to your father either. As to wicked men, I expect you may find that I'm as bad as the worst of them before you're through. No, no, Jack, I would trust you anywhere. McMurdo laughed bitterly. Good Lord, how little you know of me. Your innocent soul, my darling, could not even guess what is passing in mine. But hello, who's the visitor? The door had opened suddenly, and a young fellow came swaggering in with the air of one who is the master. He was a handsome, dashing young man of about the same age and build as McMurdo himself. Under his broad-brimmed black felt hat, which he had not troubled to remove, a handsome face with fierce, domineering eyes and a curved hawk-bill of a nose looked savagely at the pair who sat by the stove. Etty had jumped to her feet, full of confusion and alarm. "'I'm glad to see you, Mr. Baldwin,' said she. "'You're earlier than I thought. Come and sit down.' Baldwin stood with his hands on his hips, looking at McMurdo. "'Who is this?' he asked curtly. "'It's a friend of mine, Mr. Baldwin. A new boarder here, Mr. McMurdo. May I introduce you to Mr. Baldwin?' The young men nodded in surly fashion to each other. "'Maybe Miss Eddy has told you how it is with us,' said Baldwin. "'I don't understand that there was any relation between you.' "'Didn't you? Well, you can understand it now. You can take it from me that this young lady is mine, and you'll find it a very fine evening for a walk.' "'Thank you. I'm in no humour for a walk.' "'Aren't you?' The man's savage eyes were blazing with anger. "'Maybe you're in a humour for a fight, Mr. Border.' "'That I am,' cried McMurdo, springing to his feet. "'You never said a more welcome word.' "'For God's sake, Jack! Oh, for God's sake, Jack!' cried poor distracted Etty. "'Oh, Jack! Jack! He'll hurt you!' "'Oh, it's Jack, is it?' said Baldwin with an oath. "'You've come to that already, have you?' "'Oh!' Ted, be reasonable, be kind, for my sake, Ted. If ever you loved me, be big-hearted and forgiving. I think, Etty, 
that if you were to leave us alone, we could get this thing settled, said McMurdo quietly. Or maybe, Mr. Baldwin, you'll take a turn down the street with me. It's a fine evening, and there's some open ground beyond the next block. I'll get even with you without needing to dirty my hands, said his enemy. You'll wish you'd never set foot in this house before I'm through with you. No time like the present, cried McMurdo. I'll choose my own time, mister. You can leave the time to me. See here? He suddenly rolled up his sleeve and showed upon his forearm a peculiar sign which appeared to have been branded there. It was a circle with a triangle within it. Do you know what that means? I neither know nor care. Well, you will know. I'll promise you that. You won't be much older, either. Perhaps Miss Eddie can tell you something about it. As to you, Eddie, you'll come back to me on your knees, do you hear, girl? On your knees. And then I'll tell you what your punishment may be. You've sowed, and by the Lord I'll see that you reap. He glanced at them both in fury. Then he turned upon his heel, and an instant later the outer door had banged behind him. For a few moments McMurdo and the girl stood in silence, and she threw her arms around him. "'Oh, Jack, how brave you were! But it is no use. You must fly. Tonight, Jack, tonight, it's your only hope. You will have your life.' I read it in his horrible eyes. What chance have you against a dozen of them, with Boss McGinty and all the power of the lodge behind them?" McMurdo disengaged her hands, kissed her, and gently pushed her back into a chair. "'There, Akushla, there. Don't be disturbed or fear for me. I'm a free man myself. I'm after telling your father about it. Maybe I am no better than the others, so don't make a saint of me. Perhaps you hate me too now that I've told you so much.' hate you, Jack. While life lasts, I could never do that. I've heard that there is no harm in being a freeman anywhere, but here. So why should I think the worse of you for that? But if you are a freeman, Jack, why would you not go down and make a friend of Boss McGinty? Oh, hurry, Jack, hurry. Get your word in first, or the hounds will be on your trail. I was thinking the same thing, said McMurdo. I'll go right now and fix it. You can tell your father that I'll sleep here tonight and find some other quarters in the morning." The bar of McGinty's saloon was crowded as usual, for it was the favourite loafing place of all the rougher elements of the town. The man was popular, for he had a rough, jovial disposition which formed a mask covering a great deal which lay behind it. But apart from this popularity, the fear in which he was held throughout the township and indeed down the whole thirty miles of the valley and past the mountains on each side of it, was enough in itself to fill his bar, for none could afford to neglect his good will. Besides those secret powers which it was universally believed that he exercised in so pitiless a fashion, he was a high public official, a municipal councillor, and a commissioner of roads, elected to the office through the votes of the ruffians, who in turn expected to receive favours at his hands. Assessments and taxes were enormous. The public works were notoriously neglected. The accounts were slurred over by bribed auditors, and the decent citizen was terrorised into paying public blackmail, 
and holding his tongue lest some worse thing befall him. Thus it was that, year by year, Boss McGinty's diamond pins became more obtrusive, his gold chains more weighty across a more gorgeous vest, and his saloon stretched farther and farther, until it threatened to absorb one whole side of the market square. McMurdo pushed open the swinging door of the saloon, and made his way amid the crowd of men within, through an atmosphere blurred with tobacco smoke, and heavy with the smell of spirits. The place was brilliantly lighted, and the huge heavily gilt mirrors upon every wall reflected and multiplied the garish illumination. There were several bartenders in their shirt-sleeves, hard at work mixing drinks for the loungers who fringed the broad brass-trimmed counter. At the far end, with his body resting upon the bar, and a cigar stuck at an acute angle from the corner of his mouth, stood a tall, strong, heavily built man who could be none other than the famous McGinty himself. He was a black-maned giant, bearded to the cheekbones, and with a shock of raven hair which fell to his collar. His complexion was as swarthy as that of an Italian, and his eyes were of a strange dead black, which, combined with a slight squint, gave them a particularly sinister appearance. All else in the man, his noble proportions, his fine features, and his frank bearing, fitted in with that jovial, man-to-man -man manner which he affected. Here, one would say, is a bluff, honest fellow, whose heart would be sound, however rude his outspoken words might seem. It was only when those dead, dark eyes, deep and remorseless, were turned upon a man that he shrank within himself, feeling that he was face to face with an infinite possibility of latent evil, with a strength and courage and cunning behind it which made it a thousand times more deadly. Having had a good look at this man, McMurdo elbowed his way forward with his usual careless audacity, and pushed himself through the little group of courtiers who were fawning upon the powerful boss, laughing uproariously at the smallest of his jokes. The young stranger's bold grey eyes looked back fearlessly through their glasses at the deadly black ones which turned sharply upon him. "'Well, young man, I can't call your face to mind.' "'I'm new here, Mr. McGinty.' "'You are not so new that you can't give a gentleman his proper title.' "'He's Councillor McGinty, young man,' said a voice from the group. "'I'm sorry, Councillor.' I'm strange to the ways of the place, but I was advised to see you. Well, you see me. This is all there is. What do you think of me? Well, it's early days. If your heart is as big as your body, and your soul as fine as your face, then I'd ask for nothing better, said McMurdo. By gar, you've got an Irish tongue in your head anyhow, cried the saloon-keeper, not quite certain whether to humour this audacious visitor or to stand upon his dignity. "'So you are good enough to pass my appearance?' "'Sure,' said McMurdo. "'And you were told to see me?' "'I was.' "'And who told you?' "'Brother Scanlon, of Large 341, Vermissa. I drink your health, Councillor, and to our better acquaintance.' He raised a glass with which he had been served to his lips and elevated his little finger as he drank it. McGinty, who had been watching him narrowly, 
raised his thick black eyebrows. "'Oh, it's like that, is it?' said he. "'I'll have to look a bit closer into this, Mr. McMurdo.' "'A bit closer, Mr. McMurdo, for we don't take folk on trust in these parts, nor believe all we're told neither. Come in here for a moment, behind the bar.' There was a small room there, lined with barrels. McGinty carefully closed the door, and then seated himself on one of them, biting thoughtfully on his cigar and surveying his companion with those disquieting eyes. For a couple of minutes he sat in complete silence. McMurdo bore the inspection cheerfully, one hand in his coat pocket, the other twisting his brown moustache. Suddenly McGinty stooped and produced a wicked-looking revolver. "'See here, my joker,' said he. "'If I thought you were playing any game on us, it would be short work for you.' "'This is a strange welcome,' McMurdo answered with some dignity. "'For the bodymaster of a larger freeman to give to a stranger brother?' "'Aye, but it's just the same that you have to prove,' said McGinty. "'And God help you if you fail. "'Where were you made?' "'Large twenty-nine. Chicago. When? June twenty-fourth, eighteen seventy-two. What bodymaster? James H. Scott. Who is your district ruler? Bartholomew Wilson. Hmm. You seem glib enough in your tests. What are you doing here? Working. The same as you, but a poorer job. You have your back answer quick enough? Yes, I was always quick of speech. Are you quick of action? I have had that name among those that knew me best. Well, we may try you sooner than you think. Have you heard anything of the lodge in these parts? I have heard that it takes a man to be a brother. True for you, Mr. McMurdo. Why did you leave Chicago? I'm damned if I'll tell you that. McGinty opened his eyes. He was not used to being answered in such fashion, and it amused him. "'Why won't you tell me?' "'Because no brother may tell another a lie.' "'Then the truth is too bad to tell?' "'You can put it that way if you like.' "'See here, mister. You can't expect me as bodymaster to pass into the lodge a man for whose past he can't answer.' McMurdo looked puzzled. Then he took a worn newspaper cutting from an inner pocket. "'You wouldn't squeal on a fellow,' said he. "'I'll wipe my hand across your face if you say such words to me,' cried McGinty hotly. "'You're right, Counselor,' said McMurdo meekly. "'I should apologize. I spoke without thought. "'Well, I know that I'm safe in your hands. Look at that clipping.' McGinty glanced his eyes over the account of the shooting of one Jonas Pinto in the Lake Saloon, Market Street, Chicago, in the New Year week of 1874. "'Your work?' he asked as he handed back the paper. McMurdo nodded. "'Why did you shoot him?' "'I was helping Uncle Sam to make dollars. Maybe mine were not as good gold as his, but they looked as well and were cheaper to make.' This man, Pinto, helped me to shove the queer— To do what? Well, it means to pass the dollars out into circulation. Then he said he would split. Maybe he did split. 
I didn't wait to see. I just killed him and lighted out for the coal country. Why the coal country? Because I'd read in the papers that they weren't too particular in those parts. McGinty laughed. Ha! <laughs> you are first a coiner and then a murderer, and you came to these parts because you thought you'd be welcome. That's about the size of it, McMurdo answered. Well, I guess you'll go far. Say, can you make those dollars yet? McMurdo took half a dozen from his pocket. Those never passed the Philadelphia Mint, said he. You don't say. McGinty held them to the light in his enormous hand, which was hairy as a gorilla's. I can see no difference. Gah, you'll be a mighty useful brother. I'm thinking we can do with a bad man or two among us. Friend McMurdo, for there are times when we have to take our own part. We'd soon be against the wall if we didn't shove back at those that were pushing us. Well, I guess I'll do my share of shoving with the rest of the boys. You seem to have a good nerve. You didn't squirm when I shoved this gun at you. It was not me that was in danger. Who then? It was you, Councillor. McMurdo drew a cocked pistol from the side pocket of his pea-jacket. I was covering you all the time. I guess my shot would have been as quick as yours. By gar! McKinty flushed an angry red and then burst into a roar of laughter. Ha! 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 Say we've had no such holy terror come to hand this many a year. I reckon the Lodge will learn to be proud of you. Well, what the hell do you want? And can't I speak alone with a gentleman for five minutes, but you must butt in on us? The bartender stood abashed. I'm sorry, Councillor, but it's Ted Baldwin. He says he must see you this very minute. The message was unnecessary, for the set, cruel face of the man himself was looking over the servant's shoulder. He pushed the bartender out and closed the door on him. So, said he with a furious glance at McMurdo, you got here first, did you? I have a word to say to you, Councillor, about this man. Then say it here and now before my face, cried McMurdo. I'll say it at my own time, in my own way. Tut, tut, said McGinty, getting off his barrel. This will never do. We have a new brother here, Baldwin, and it's not for us to greet him in such fashion. Hold out your hand, man, and make it up. "'Never!' cried Baldwin in a fury. "'I've offered to fight him if he thinks I've wronged him,' said McMurdo. "'I'll fight him with fists, or if that won't satisfy him, "'I'll fight him any other way he chooses. "'Now I'll leave it to you, Councillor, to judge between us, "'as a body-master should.' "'What is it, then?' "'A young lady. She's free to choose for herself.' "'Is she?' cried Baldwin. "'As between two brothers of the Lodge, I should say that she was,' said the boss. "'Oh, that's your ruling, is it?' "'Yes, it is, Ted Baldwin,' said McGinty, with a wicked stare. "'Is it you that would dispute it?' "'You would throw over one that has stood by you this five years "'in favour of a man that you never saw before in your life? "'You're not body-master for life, Jack McGinty, "'and by God, when next it comes to a vote—' The councillor sprang at him like a tiger, his hand closed round the other's neck, and he hurled him back across one of the barrels. 
In his mad fury, he would have squeezed the life out of him if McMurdo had not interfered. "'Easy, Councillor! For heaven's sake, go easy!' he cried as he dragged him back. McGinty released his hold, and Baldwin cowed and shaken, gasping for breath and shivering in every limb, as one who has looked over the very edge of death, sat up on the barrel over which he had been hurled. "'You've been asking for it this many a day, Ted Baldwin.' "'Now you've got it!' cried McGinty, his huge chest rising and falling. "'Maybe you think if I was voted down from Bodymaster, you'd find yourself in my shoes. "'It's for the Lodge to say that. But so long as I'm the chief, I'll have no man lift his voice against me or my rulings.' "'I have nothing against you,' mumbled Baldwin, feeling his throat. "'Well, then.' cried the other, relapsing in a moment into a bluff joviality. "'We're all good friends again, and there's an end of the matter.' He took a bottle of champagne down from the shelf and twisted out the cork. "'See now,' he continued as he filled three high glasses, "'let us drink the quarrelling toast of the lodge. After that, as you know, there can be no bad blood between us. Now, then,' the left hand on the apple of my throat. I say to you, Ted Baldwin, what is the offence, sir? The clouds are heavy, answered Baldwin, but they will forever brighten. And this I swear. The men drank their glasses, and the same ceremony was performed between Baldwin and McMurdo. There, cried McGinty, rubbing his hands, that's the end of the black blood. You come under lodge discipline if it goes further, and that's a heavy hand in these parts, as Brother Baldwin knows, and as you will damn soon find out, Brother McMurdo, if you ask for trouble. Faith, I'd be slow to do that, said McMurdo. He held out his hand to Baldwin. I'm quick to quarrel, and quick to forgive. It's my hot Irish blood, they tell me, but it's over for me, and I bear no grudge. Baldwin had to take the proffered hand, for the baleful eye of the terrible boss was upon him. But his sullen face showed how little the words of the other had moved him. McGinty clapped them both on the shoulders. "'Tut! These girls! These girls!' he cried. "'To think that the same petticoat should come between two of my boys! It's the devil's own luck!' Well, it's the colleen inside of them that must settle the question, for it's outside the jurisdiction of a bodymaster, and the Lord be praised for that. We have enough on us without the women as well. You'll have to be affiliated to Lodge 341, Brother McMurdo. We have our own ways and methods, different from Chicago. Saturday night is our meeting, and if you come then, we'll make you free forever of the Vermissa Valley." End of chapter 2《2 Chapter 3 of The Valley of Fear by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 3 Lodge 341 Vermissa. On the day following the evening which had contained so many exciting events, McMurdo moved his lodgings from old Jacob Shafter's and took up his quarters at the widow McNamara's on the extreme outskirts of the town. 
Scanlon, his original acquaintance aboard the train, had occasion shortly afterwards to move into Vermissa, and the two lodged together. There was no other boarder, and the hostess was an easy-going old Irish woman, who left them to themselves, so that they had a freedom for speech and action welcome to men who had secrets in common. Shafter had relented to the extent of letting McMurdo come to his meals there when he liked, so that his intercourse with Etty was by no means broken. On the contrary, it drew closer and more intimate as the weeks went by. In his bedroom at his new abode, McMurdo felt it safe to take out the coining moulds, and under many a pledge of secrecy a number of brothers from the lodge were allowed to come in and see them, each carrying away in his pocket some examples of the false money, so cunningly struck that there was never the slightest difficulty or danger in passing it. Why, with such a wonderful art at his command, McMurdo should con condescend to work at all, was a perpetual mystery to his companions, though he made it clear to anyone who asked him that if he lived without any visible means it would very quickly bring the police upon his track. One policeman was indeed after him already, but the incident, as luck would have it, did the adventurer a great deal more good than harm. After the first introduction there were few evenings when he did not find his way to McGinty's saloon, there to make closer acquaintance with The Boys, which was the jovial title by which the dangerous gang who infested the place were known to one another. His dashing manner and fearlessness of speech made him a favourite with them all, while the rapid and scientific way in which he polished off his antagonist in an all-in barroom scrap earned the respect of that rough community. Another incident, however, raised him even higher in their estimation. Just at the crowded hour one night, the door opened and a man entered with the quiet blue uniform and peaked cap of the mine police. This was a special body, raised by the railways and colliery owners, to supplement the efforts of the ordinary civil police, who were perfectly helpless in the face of the organised ruffianism which terrorised the district. There was a hush as he entered, and many a curious glance was cast at him but the relations between policemen and criminals are peculiar in some parts of the States, and McGinty himself, standing behind his counter, showed no surprise when the policeman enrolled himself among his customers. "'A straight whisky for the night is bitter,' said the police officer. "'I don't think we've met before, Councillor. "'You'll be the new captain,' said McGinty. "'That's so.' We'll look into you, Councillor, and to the other leading citizens, to help us in upholding law and order in this township. Captain Marvin is my name. We do better without you, Captain Marvin, for we have our own police of the township, and no need for any imported goods. What are you but the paid tool of the capitalists, hired by them to club or shoot your poorer fellow citizen? Well, well, we won't argue about that said the police officer good-humouredly. I expect we all do our duty same as we see it, but we can't all see it the same. He'd drunk off his glass and had turned to go when his eyes fell upon the face of Jack McMurdo, who was scowling at his elbow. Hello, hello, he cried, looking him up and down. Here's an old acquaintance. McMurdo shrank away from him. I was never a friend to you, 
nor any other cursed copper in my life,' said he. "'An acquaintance isn't always a friend,' said the police captain, grinning. "'You're Jack McMurdo of Chicago right enough, and don't you deny it.' McMurdo shrugged his shoulders. "'I'm not denying it,' said he. "'Do you think I'm ashamed of my own name?' "'You've got good cause to be, anyhow.' "'What the devil do you mean by that?' he roared with his fist clenched. "'No, no, Jack. Bluster won't do with me. I was an officer in Chicago before ever I came to this darned coal bunker, and I know a Chicago crook when I see one.' McMurdo's face fell. "'Don't tell me that you're Marvin of the Chicago Central,' he cried. "'Just the same old Teddy Marvin at your service.' We haven't forgotten the shooting of Jonas Pinto up there. I never shot him. Did you not? That's good impartial evidence, ain't it? Well, his death came in uncommon handy for you, or they would have had you for shoving the queer. Well, we can let that be bygones, for between you and me, and perhaps I'm going further than my duty in saying it, they could get no clear case against you, and Chicago's open to you tomorrow. I'm very well where I am. Well, I've given you the pointer, and you're a sulky dog not to thank me for it. Well, I suppose you mean well, and I do thank you, said McMurdo in no very gracious manner. It's mum with me so long as I see you living on the straight, said the captain. But by the Lord, if you get off after this, it's another story. So good night to you, and good night, counsellor. He left the barroom but not before he'd created a local hero. McMurdo's deeds in far Chicago had been whispered before. He'd put off all questions with a smile, as one who did not wish to have greatness thrust upon him. But now the thing was officially confirmed. The bar loafers crowded round him and shook him heartily by the hand. He was free of the community from that time on. He could drink hard and show little trace of it. But that evening, had his mate Scanlon not been at hand to lead him home, the fated hero would surely have spent his night under the bar. On a Saturday night, McMurdo was introduced to the lodge. He had thought to pass in without ceremony as being an initiate of Chicago, but there were particular rites in Vermissa, of which they were proud, and these had to be undergone by every postulant. The assembly met in a large room, reserved for such purposes at the Union House. Some sixty members assembled at Vermissa, but that by no means represented the full strength of the organization, for there were several other lodges in the valley, and others across the mountains on each side, who exchanged members when any serious business was afoot, so that a crime might be done by men who were strangers to the locality. Altogether, there were not less than five hundred scattered over the coal district. In the bare assembly room, the men were gathered round a long table. At the side was a second one, laden with bottles and glasses, on which some members of the company were already turning their eyes. McGinty sat at the head, with a flat black velvet cap upon his shock of tangled black hair, and a coloured purple stole round his neck, so that he seemed to be a priest, presiding over some diabolical ritual. To right and left of him were the higher lodge officials, the cruel, handsome face of Ted Baldwin among them. 
Each of these wore some scarf or medallion as emblem of his office. They were, for the most part, men of mature age, but the rest of the company consisted of young fellows from eighteen to twenty-five, the ready and capable agents who carried out the commands of their seniors. Among the older men were many whose features showed the tigerish, lawless souls within, but looking at the rank and file, it was difficult to believe that these eager and open-faced young fellows were in very truth a dangerous gang of murderers, whose minds had suffered such complete moral perversion that they took a horrible pride in their proficiency at the business, and looked with deepest respect at the men who had the reputation of making what they called a clean job. To their contorted natures it had become a spirited and chivalrous thing to volunteer for service against some man who had never injured them, and whom in many cases they had never seen in their lives. The crime committed, they quarrelled as to who had actually struck the fatal blow, and amused one another and the company by describing the cries and contortions of the murdered man. At first they had shown some secrecy in their arrangements, but at the time which this narrative describes their proceedings were extraordinarily open, for the repeated failure of the law had proved to them that on the one hand no one would dare to witness against them, and on the other they had an unlimited number of staunch witnesses upon whom they could call, and a well-filled treasure-chest from which they could draw the funds to engage the best legal talent in the state. In ten long years of outrage there had been no single conviction, and the only danger that ever threatened the scourers lay in the victim himself, who, however outnumbered and taken by surprise, might and occasionally did leave his mark upon his assailants. McMurdo had been warned that some ordeal lay before him, but no one would tell him in what it consisted. He was led now into an outer room by two solemn brothers. Through the plank partition he could hear the murmur of many voices from the assembly within. Once or twice he caught the sound of his own name, and he knew that they were discussing his candidacy. Then there entered an inner guard with a green and gold sash across his chest. "'The bodymaster orders that he shall be trussed, blinded, and entered,' said he. The three of them removed his coat, turned up the sleeve of his right arm, and finally passed a rope around above the elbows and made it fast. They next placed a thick black cap right over his head and the upper part of his face, so that he could see nothing. He was then led into the assembly hall. It was pitch dark, and very oppressive under his hood. He heard the rustle and murmur of the people round him, and then the voice of McGinty sounded dull and distant through the covering of his ears. "'John McMurdo,' said the voice, "'are you already a member of the ancient order of freemen?' He bowed his assent. "'Is your lodge number twenty-nine Chicago?' He bowed again. "'Dark nights are unpleasant,' said the voice. "'Yes, for strangers to travel,' he answered. "'The clouds are heavy.' "'Yes, a storm is approaching.' "'Are the brethren satisfied?' asked the bodymaster. There was a general murmur of assent. "'We know, brother, 
by your sign and by your countersign, that you are indeed one of us, said McGinty. We would have you know, however, that in this county and in other counties of these parts, we have certain rights, and also certain duties of our own which call for good men. Are you ready to be tested? I am. Are you of stout heart? I am. Take a stride forward to prove it. As the words were said, he felt two hard points in front of his eyes pressing upon them, so that it appeared as if he could not move forward without a danger of losing them. Nonetheless, he nerved himself to step resolutely out, and as he did so the pressure melted away. There was a low murmur of applause. "'He is of a stout heart,' said the voice. "'Can you bear pain?' "'As well as another,' he answered. "'Test him!' It was all he could do to keep himself from screaming out, for an agonizing pain shot through his forearm. He nearly fainted at the sudden shock of it, but he bit his lip and clenched his hands to hide his agony. "'I can take more than that,' said he. This time there was loud applause. A finer first appearance had never been made in the lodge. Hands clapped him on the back, and the hood was plucked from his head. He stood blinking and smiling amid the congratulations of the brothers. "'One last word, Brother McMurdo,' said McGinty. "'You have already sworn the oath of secrecy and fidelity.' and you are aware that the punishment for any breach of it is instant and inevitable death. I am, said McMurdo. And you accept the rule of the bodymaster, for the time being, under all circumstances? I do. Then, in the name of Lodge 341 Vermissa, I welcome you to its privileges and debates. You will put the liquor on the table, Brother Scanlon, and we will drink to our worthy brother. McMurdo's coat had been brought to him, but before putting it on he examined his right arm, which still smarted heavily. There on the flesh of the forearm was a circle with a triangle within it, deep and red, as the branding iron had left it. One of the two of his neighbours pulled up their sleeves and showed their own lodge marks. "'We've all had it!' said one, but not all as brave as you over it. Tut, it was nothing, said he, but it burned and ached all the same. When the drinks which followed the ceremony of initiation had all been disposed of, the business of the lodge proceeded. McMurdo, accustomed only to the prosaic performances of Chicago, listened with open ears and more surprise than he ventured to show to what followed. The first business on the agenda paper, said McGinty, is to read the following letter from Division Master Windle of Merton County Lodge 249. He says, Dear Sir, there is a job to be done on Andrew Ray of Ray and Sturmish, coal owners near this place. You will remember that your lodge owes us a return having had the service of two brethren in the matter of the patrolman last fall. You will send two good men, they will be taken charge of by Treasurer Higgins of this lodge, 
whose address you know. He will show them when to act and where. Yours in freedom, J. W. Windle, D. M. A. O. F. Windle has never refused us when we have had occasion to ask for the loan of a man or two, and it's not for us to refuse him. McGinty paused and looked round the room with his dull, malevolent eyes. Who will volunteer for the job? Several young fellows held up their hands. The bodymaster looked at them with an approving smile. You'll do, Tiger Cormac. If you handle it as well as you did the last, you won't be wrong. And you, Wilson. I've no pistol, said the volunteer, a mere boy in his teens. It's your first, is it not? Well, you have to be blooded some time. It'll be a great start for you. As to the pistol, you'll find it waiting for you, or I'm mistaken. If you report yourselves on Monday, it'll be time enough. You'll get a great welcome when you return. Any reward this time? asked Cormac, a thick-set, dark-faced, brutal-looking young man whose ferocity had earned him the nickname of Tiger. Never mind the reward. You just do it for the honour of the thing. Maybe when it's done there'll be a few odd dollars at the bottom of the box. What has the man done? asked the young Wilson. Sure it's not for the likes of you to ask what the man has done. He's been judged over there. That's no business of ours. All we have to do is to carry it out for them, same as they would for us. Speaking of that, two brothers from the Merton Lodge are coming over to us next week to do some business in this quarter. Who are they? asked someone. Faith, it is wiser not to ask. If you know nothing, you can testify nothing, and no trouble can come of it. But they are men who will make a clean job when they're about it. And time, too, cried Ted Baldwin. Folk are getting out of hand in these parts. It was only last week that three of our men were turned off by Foreman Blaker. It's been owing him a long time, and he'll get it full and proper. Get what? McMurdo whispered to his neighbour. The business end of a buckshot cartridge, cried the man with a loud laugh. What think you of our ways, brother? McMurdo's criminal soul seemed to have already absorbed the spirit of the vile association of which he was now a member. I like it well, said he. Tis a proper place for a lad of metal. Several of those who sat around heard his words and applauded them. What's that? cried the black-maned bodymaster from the end of the table. "'Tis our new brother, sir, who finds our ways to his taste.' McMurdo rose to his feet for an instant. "'I would say, eminent bodymaster, that if a man should be wanted, I should take it as an honour to be chosen to help the lodge.' There was great applause at this. It was felt that a new sun was pushing its rim above the horizon. To some of the elders it seemed that the progress was a little too rapid. "'I would move,' said the secretary Haraway, a vulture-faced old greybeard who sat near the chairman, "'that Brother McMurdo should wait until it is the good pleasure of the lodge to employ him.' "'Sure, that was what I meant. I'm in your hands,' said McMurdo. "'Your time will come, brother,' said the chairman. "'We have marked you down as a willing man. 
and we believe that you will do good work in these parts. There is a small matter to-night in which you may take a hand, if it so please you. I'll wait for something that is worth while. You can come to-night anyhow, and it will help you to know what we stand for in this community. I will make the announcement later. Meanwhile—he glanced at his agenda paper— I have one or two more points to bring before the meeting. First of all, I will ask the treasurer as to our bank balance. There is the pension to Jim Carnaway's widow. He was struck down during the work of the lodge, and it is for us to see that she is not the loser. Jim was shot last month when they cried to kill Chester Wilcox of Marley Creek, McMurdo's neighbour informed him. "'The funds are good at the moment,' said the treasurer, with the bank-book in front of him. "'The firms have been generous of late. Max Linder and Co. paid five hundred to be left alone. Walker Brothers sent in a hundred. But I took it on myself to return it, and ask for five. If I do not hear by Wednesday, their winding-gear may get out of order. We had to burn their breaker last year before they became reasonable. Then the West Section Coaling Company has paid its annual contribution.' We have enough on hand to meet any obligations. "'What about Archie Swindon?' asked a brother. "'He has sold out and left the district. The old devil left a note for us to say that he'd had rather be a free-crossing sweeper in a New York than a large mine-owner under the power of a ring of blackmailers. By gar, it was as well that he made a break for it before the note reached us. I guess he won't show his face in this valley again.' An elderly, clean-shaved man, with a kindly face and a good brow, rose from the end of the table which faced the chairman. "'Mr. Treasurer,' he asked, "'may I ask who has bought the property of this man that we have driven out of the district?' "'Yes, Brother Morris. It has been bought by the State and Merton County Railroad Company.' "'And who bought the mines of Todman and of Lee that came into the market in the same way last year?' The same company, Brother Morris. And who bought the ironworks of Manson, and of Schumann, and of Van Deer, and of Atwood, which have all been given up of late? They were all bought by the West Gilmerton General Mining Company. I don't see, Brother Morris, said the chairman, that it matters to us who buys them, since they can't carry them out of the district. With all respect to you, eminent bodymaster, I think it may matter very much to us. This process has been going on now for ten long years. We are gradually driving all the small men out of trade. What is the result? We find in their places great companies like the Railroad or the General Iron, who have their directors in New York or Philadelphia, and care nothing for our threats. We can take it out of their local bosses, but it only means that others will be sent in their stead and we are making it dangerous for ourselves. The small men could not harm us. They had not the money nor the power. So long as we did not squeeze them too dry, they would stay on under our power. But if these big companies find that we stand between them and their profits, they will spare no pains and no expense to hunt us down and bring us to court. There was a hush at these ominous words and every face darkened as gloomy looks were exchanged. So omnipotent and unchallenged had they been, 
at the very thought that there was possible retribution in the background, had been banished from their minds. And yet the idea struck a chill to the most reckless of them. "'It is my advice,' the speaker continued, "'that we go easier upon the small men. On the day that they have all been driven out, the power of this society will have been broken.' Unwelcome truths are not popular. There were angry cries as the speaker resumed his seat. McGinty rose with gloom upon his brow. "'Brother Morris,' said he, "'you were always a croaker. So long as the members of this lodge stand together, there is no power in the United States that can touch them. Sure, have we not tried it often enough in the law courts? I expect the big companies will find it easier to pay than to fight, same as the little companies do. And now, brethren,' McGinty took off his black velvet cap and his stole as he spoke. "'This lodge has finished its business for the evening, save for one small matter which may be mentioned when we are parting. The time has now come for fraternal refreshment and for harmony.' Strange indeed is human nature. Here were these men, to whom murder was familiar, who again and again had struck down the father of the family some man against whom they had no personal feeling, without one thought of compunction or of compassion for his weeping wife or helpless children, and yet the tender or pathetic in music could move them to tears. McMurdo had a fine tenor voice, and if he had failed to gain the good will of the lodge before, it could no longer have been withheld after he had thrilled them with I am sitting on the stile Mary and on the banks of Allen Water. In his very first night, the new recruit had made himself one of the most popular of the brethren, marked already for advancement and high office. There were other qualities needed, however, besides those of good fellowship to make a worthy freeman, and of these he was given an example before the evening was over. The whisky bottle had passed round many times, and the men were flushed and ripe for mischief when their bodymaster rose once more to address them. "'Boys,' said he, "'there's one man in this town that wants trimming up, "'and it's for you to see that he gets it. "'I'm speaking of James Stanger of the Herald. "'You've seen how he's been opening his mouth against us again?' "'There was a murmur of assent, with many a muttered oath. "'McGinty took a slip of paper from his waistcoat pocket. "'Law and order! That's how he heads it. Reign of terror in the coal and iron district. Twelve years have now elapsed since the first assassinations which prove the existence of a criminal organization in our midst. From that day these outrages have never ceased until now they have reached a pitch which makes us the opprobrium of the civilized world. Is it for such results as this? that our great country welcomes to its bosom the alien who flies from the despotisms of Europe? Is it that they shall themselves become tyrants over the very men who have given them shelter, and that a state of terrorism and lawlessness should be established under the very shadow of the sacred folds of the starry flag of freedom, which would raise horror in our minds if we read of it as existing under the most effete monarchy of the East? The men are known. The organization is patent and public. 
How long are we to endure it? Can we forever live? Sure, I've read enough of the slush, cried the chairman, tossing the paper down upon the table. That's what he says of us. The question I'm asking is, what shall we say to him? Kill him, cried a dozen fierce voices. I protest against that, said Brother Morris, the man of the good brow and shaved face. I tell you, brethren, that our hand is too heavy in this valley, and that there will come a point where in self-defence every man will unite to crush us out. James Stanger is an old man. He is respected in the township and the district. His paper stands for all that is solid in the valley. If that man is struck down, there will be a stir through this state that will only end with our destruction. "'And how would they bring about our destruction, Mr. Standback?' cried McGinty. "'Is it by the police? Sure, half of them are in our pay, and half of them are afraid of us. Or is it by the law courts and the judge? Haven't we tried that before now, and whatever came of it?' "'There is a Judge Lynch that might try the case,' said Brother Morris. A general shout of anger greeted the suggestion. "'I have but to raise my finger,' cried McGinty, "'and I could put two hundred men into this town "'that would clear it out from end to end.' "'Then suddenly, raising his voice "'and bending his huge black brows into a terrible frown, "'See here, Brother Morris, "'I have my eye on you, and have had for some time. "'You've no heart yourself, "'and you try to take the heart out of others.' It will be an ill day for you, Brother Morris, when your own name comes on our agenda paper, and I'm thinking that it's just there that I ought to place it. Morris had turned deadly pale, and his knees seemed to give way under him as he fell back into his chair. He raised his glass in his trembling hand, and drank before he could answer. I apologize, eminent bodymaster, to you and to every brother in this lodge if I have said more than I should. I am a faithful member, you all know that, and it is my fear lest evil come to the lodge which makes me speak in anxious words. But I have greater trust in your judgment than in my own eminent bodymaster, and I promise you that I will not offend again." The bodymaster's scowl relaxed as he listened to the humble words. "'Very good, Brother Morris.' It's myself that would be sorry if it were needful to give you a lesson. But so long as I am in this chair, we shall be a united lodge in word and in deed. And now, boys, he continued looking round at the company, I'll say this much, that if Stanger got his full deserts, there would be more trouble than we need ask for. These editors hang together, and every journal in the state would be crying out for police and troops. But I guess you can give him a pretty severe warning. Will you fix it, Brother Baldwin? Sure, said the young man eagerly. How many will you take? Half a dozen, and two to guard the door. You'll come, Gower, and you, Mansell, and you, Scanlan, and the two Willoughbys. "'I promised the new brother he should go,' said the chairman. Ted Baldwin looked at McMurdo with eyes which showed that he had not forgotten nor forgiven. "'Well, he can come if he wants,' 
he said in a surly voice. "'That's enough. The sooner we get to work, the better.' The company broke up with shouts and yells and snatches of drunken song. The bar was still crowded with revellers, and many of the brethren remained there. The little band who had been told off for duty passed out into the street, proceeding in twos and threes along the sidewalk, so as not to provoke attention. It was a bitterly cold night, with a half-moon shining brilliantly in a frosty, star-spangled sky. The men stopped and gathered in a yard which faced a high building. The words, Vermissa Herald, were printed in gold lettering between the brightly lit windows. From within came the clanking of the printing press. "'Here you,' said Baldwin to McMurdo. "'You can stand below at the door and see that the road is kept open for us. Arthur Willoughby can stay with you. You others come with me. Have no fears, boys, for we have a dozen witnesses that we are in the Union Bar at this very moment.' It was nearly midnight, and the street was deserted, save for one or two revellers upon their way home. The party crossed the road, and, pushing open the door of the newspaper office, Baldwin and his men rushed in and up the stair which faced them. McMurdo and another remained below. From the room above came a shout, a cry for help, and then the sound of trampling feet and of falling chairs. An instant later a grey-haired man rushed out on the landing. He was seized before he could get farther, and his spectacles came tinkling down to McMurdo's feet. There was a thud and a groan. He was on his face, and half a dozen sticks were clattering together as they fell upon him. He writhed, and his long, thin limbs quivered under the blows. The others ceased at last. But Baldwin, his cruel face set in an infernal smile, was hacking at the man's head, which he vainly endeavoured to defend with his arms. His white hair was dabbled with patches of blood. Baldwin was still stooping over his victim putting in a short, vicious blow whenever he could see a part exposed when McMurdo dashed up the stair and pushed him back. "'You'll kill the man,' said he. "'Drop it!' Baldwin looked at him in amazement. "'Curse you!' he cried. "'Who are you to interfere? You that are new to the lodge! Stand back!' He raised his stick, but McMurdo had whipped his pistol out of his pocket. "'Stand back yourself!' he cried. I'll blow your face in if you lay a hand on me. As to the lodge, wasn't it the order of the bodymaster that the man was not to be killed? And what are you doing but killing him? It's truth, he says, remarked one of the men. By gar, you'd best hurry yourselves, cried the man below. The windows are all lighting up, and you'll have the whole town here inside of five minutes. There was indeed the sound of shouting in the street, and the little group of compositors and pressmen was forming in the hall below and nerving itself to action. Leaving the limp and motionless body of the editor at the head of the stair, the criminals rushed down and made their way swiftly along the street. Having reached the Union House, some of them, mixed with the crowd in McGinty's saloon, whispering across the bar to the boss that the job had been well carried through, others, and among them McMurdo, broke away into side streets, and so by devious paths to their own homes. End of chapter 3